Welcome to Cancer Center Grand Rounds and welcome to those watching remotely. Today we have visiting us uh, Dr. Michael Wee from UMass. So Mike received his bachelor's from the University of Washington and then his PhD in pharmacology from UNC Chapel Hill where his work focused on uh, G protein signaling. He then went to do a postdoc at the Koch Institute at MIT in the lab of Mike Yaffe, uh, where he performed some uh, very high impact seminal work, again, focusing on signaling pathways, but also integrating uh, computational biology. Mike went, then went on to um, secure a independent position as an assistant professor in the Department of Molecular Cell and Cancer Biology at UMass uh, Medical School in Worcester. Also a member of the program in systems biology and molecular medicine, and I would say Mike um, is a true systems biologist um, in that he integrates both wet and dry lab uh, with a focus on cancer. Uh, he's managed to secure uh, funding early in his career, both from the American Cancer Society, the Breast Cancer Alliance, and also the Smith family, and I believe uh, upcoming funding from NCI as well. Uh, he does not have any financial interest to disclose with respect to this presentation. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Uh, I will say that Mike is also, um, as a member of UMass, um, is coming up as part of this uh, Dartmouth UMass uh, cancer-focused seminar series that we've been we've initiated over the last few months and will continue through the end of um, the end of the year through May or June, um, where we're trying to promote uh, trans-institutional collaboration with UMass Medical School, namely focused on cancer biology. So today, Mike will talk to us about microenvironmental regulation of response to conventional chemotherapies in cancer. Mike. Thank you, Todd. Um, yeah, so I, I am here representing UMass as, as what we hope will become um, a bridge for more collaborations between our two universities. I think there certainly is a lot of room for, for you know, sort of productive interactions, um, and I've already experienced a lot of that this morning. So they asked me again to just reiterate that I don't have any conflicts of interest, no, nothing to disclose, so we'll just start with that. Um, but I, I thought I'd begin this talk by defining what I think is is still in many ways an ill-defined term in that systems biology. It, it's, it's a word that is used to mean different things in different communities, and maybe I'll try and highlight to you what we mean by systems biology, uh, at least within my, uh, our program in systems biology at UMass. And um, as Todd mentioned, I, I would consider myself a card-carrying member of the systems biology community, and what you'll see from us today is that we do a lot of screens. And um, But I wanted to highlight that Screens in and of themselves, whether they're genetic screens or chemical screens or what have you, I think do not constitute what we would call systems biology, and maybe deciphering or highlighting the distinction between these concepts will require a little bit of uh, analogizing, as you'll see. I think the, 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 the central issue is that you know, not all screens, not all fishing expeditions are, are created equally, right? Of course, it matters that one pick uh, the right tools, bait in this case, and maybe that you apply these tools uh, to the right question, maybe looking in the right area, and that these two things are maybe paired appropriately. But of course, this distinction only highlights the, the difference between maybe a, a bad experiment and what one might consider an effective use of, of omic tools. But what we're always trying to do in my lab and in our, our department is envision a completely different type of screening, one in which it ceases to be a question 
will I catch a fish? In, in fact, what we're trying to do is create scenarios where it's inevitable that we will catch all of the fish because of a, a, a conversion of our, of our throughput as well as, of our, as, as our sensitivity. And if we could do this, if we could create brands of screening that are truly sensitive and comprehensive and quantitative, could we unleash the ability to ask and then answer fundamentally different questions. And so really what we're doing in, in our lab is, is akin to what one would call reverse engineering or what a mathematician might call solving inverse problems. What we're trying to do is determine from the observed behaviors of some phenotype the design of the quote-unquote system that might produce not a single one of these responses, but this entire complement of diverse responses. A uh, system, of course, in this context can mean essentially anything. This is, I think, where the ambiguity of systems biology really can't be avoided. It could be itself a biological network or circuit. It could be some regulatory process or even, for example, the structure of a, of a, of a single protein. So in my lab, the, uh, what we're trying to reverse engineer is an understanding of how cells regulate cell death. Uh, primarily the regulatory signaling architecture that's used within cells to transmit information about the environment to these machines that then control whether the cell lives or dies. There's been a lot of advances in the cell death community, which we're, we're very interested in, that have elaborated the, the brands of cell death to now include upwards of 14 or 15 different uh, molecularly distinct mechanisms. I'm not really going to focus on that today. Uh, much of our main interests in this regard uh, have fallen into two areas, first of which is understanding uh, how the signals are themselves encoded within the cell. Uh, of course, this happens in a variety of different mechanisms. For example, changes in the levels of proteins or their localization within the cell or interactions with other proteins or maybe uh, post-translational modifications that might change one of these above features or the enzymology of some of these, 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 these proteins. And what we've really been interested in is, is, is new information that's emerging that it doesn't only matter that these things exist, but also how long they persist, when they were turned on and off, and maybe the precise patterns of their behaviors. In other words, it does appear from, in most contexts that the dynamics of signaling encodes very specific information and understanding how it is that the cell, uh, through its circuitry, encodes and then interprets dynamics is, is one of our core interests. The second thing that we're interested in is, is understanding the architecture of signaling processes. We're, we're particularly interested in understanding portions of the circuitry that encode what one would consider nonlinear behaviors, things like feedback and feedforward circuitry, which I think receive a lot of attention. But most of our work is actually much more interested in, in uh, a portion of nonlinearity that I think is not considered maybe quite as, as uh, provocative or interesting, and that's simply crosstalk. Uh, I think one would define crosstalk as, as a situation wherein one pathway appears to affect the behavior of another pathway, particularly in, in instances where maybe we didn't see this or we didn't foresee that this would be true. At the molecular level, crosstalk is really defined by a very simple circuit, two different upstream nodes controlling the behavior of a shared downstream node. Okay? Um, I think identifying, revealing, focusing on these simple circuits is really quite important for a number of different reasons. I'll highlight three here. First of all, uh, I think understanding or our misunderstanding of these particular interactions lies at the heart of what we currently call context dependence, which I think if you really dig into what that means, it's simply in a, uh, kind of a soft acknowledgement that we don't really know what's happening. Right? We don't know what makes this disease case different than this disease case that accounts for how they seem to use the, the, the proteins differently. Also, we sometimes use this to describe why different labs produce different answers, that maybe this is somehow context dependent. Um, if we could understand these, these, these interactions, I think a lot of these ambiguities will, will fall to the wayside. Uh, what we've explored in the past is that understanding these types of circuits gives us an improved rationale for combination therapies. But really, 
what I'll focus on today is that uh, our, our uh, that these particular circuits are actually poorly understood using what one would consider traditional reductionist biology approaches. And what I mean by this is that I think most of us intuitively interpret uh, a crosstalk circuit like this as being what we would call an OR gate, meaning uh, if you turn on either of these two things, that should be sufficient for this process being on. And OR gate is one of the possibilities, but of course there are at least eight different uh, gating mechanisms, all of which are found in biology, um, and you can't decipher which one of these is being used in a given context if you perturb the, a, the upstream A or B input. You have to, in every case, perturb both of these alone and in combination to determine how the system is actually using this information. So with these things in mind, meaning trying to decipher crosstalk, which requires different combinatorial perturbations, and trying to understand dynamics. When I was a postdoc with Mike Yaffe, uh, we stumbled upon and then characterized the first of, of these phenotypes that we call dynamic synthetic lethalities. So you'll probably be familiar with the concept of synthetic lethality. This comes from yeast, wherein deletion of genes A or B alone do nothing, but the combination of these two deletions maybe is lethal. So a dynamic synthetic lethality is similar. However, in this case, we're talking about drugs. And the A drug, maybe this blue pill, does nothing. The B drug, this red pill, also does nothing. And the combination of these two also does nothing. But there are cases that we could first see computationally and then experimentally proven where A then B, but not B then A, is a deleterious event. And this, this derives from how signals are, are processed dynamically. Here's the example that we published a number of years ago. The A drug in this case is a widely used kinase inhibitor called erlotinib. It inhibits EGFR. The B drug is an even more widely used topoisomerase inhibitor called doxorubicin, also called adriamycin in the clinic. And we're looking here at uh, a triple negative breast cancer cell line, BT20, triple negative meaning the, the types of breast cancers that don't express ERPR and HER2. As you can see, if you give the A drug or the B drug alone or in combination, these cells are not particularly responsive with regard to in induction of apoptosis. But if we simply gave these same drugs in a different fashion, and these are the same drugs given at the same concentrations for the same amounts of time to the same cells, but if we gave A then B, with this amount of time in between, we could robustly change how these cells respond. And this is something that was entirely predictable given the signaling trajectories. And again, if you give the B then A, which is actually what is typically done in the clinical trials where these two things had been given together, you don't see that type of robust behavior. If anything, uh, the addition of the, of the B drug after the A drug uh, seems to make the, 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 the response work worse than if you had just given them doxorubicin, which is something that had been robustly seen in breast cancer clinically. So, our current working model for how it is dynamic synthetic uh, lethality is working is shown here. So it turns out that erlotinib in the context of these cancers actually does nothing to the cell death machinery. It doesn't change or speak to these proteins at all. But it's not that the cells don't care about it. Um, it's that they've, they've learned or they've acquired the ability to rapidly adapt to the loss of EGFR signaling. And this is something that we're currently trying to characterize. Such that when we remove this signal, they completely change their gene expression state. Uh, then learn to grow in a different program. In that new growth program, what, what, what happens to have been unleashed is that now DNA damage, it doesn't just kill the cells better, it actually uses a fundamentally different mechanism to kill the cells uh, in, a, in a largely non-epitotic manner. And so each of these things is something that we're, we're, we're focusing on, most of which, again, I won't get a chance to touch on today. For example, we're very interested in understanding how DNA damage uh, accesses these non-epitotic mechanisms of cell death.
Additionally, uh, we're trying to deconvolve this regulatory switch where cells can grow in both an EGF-dependent as well as EGF-independent manner, which actually requires them to change expression of about 8,000 different genes. They go from an epithelial lineage to one that is more hematopoietic. Um, but today, what I wanted to focus on is this, uh, this proximal sensing mechanism. So in this case, as, as I mentioned, erlotinib is actually not doing anything to the cell death behaviors of these cells. It's simply changing the way these cells perceive their environment, right? EGF is not a metabolite that's required for growth. It doesn't produce energy for these cells. It doesn't produce building blocks like amino acids. It's simply a signal the cells use to communicate information to each other. And so these cells exist in an EGF-rich environment in cell culture, and we've simply convinced them that they exist in an EGF-poor environment. And so that that perceptional change has catalyzed a series of events that turn into a fundamentally different regulation of cell death, okay? And so what we're trying to do, and the question we started asking, and it took us through some interesting twists and turns, which I'll, I'll, I'll discuss today, what we begin asking is what are the other things that are in the environment that the cell integrates to understand how to use the cell death machinery, right? So it can't just be EGF, what else is there? And of course, this is a, a challenging question because there is so much different environmental stimuli in the rich in vivo environment, uh, even within the tumor, uh, the tumor microenvironment, that is not replicated uh, in the simple cell culture environment. And so our strategy here was instead of focusing on each of the maybe tens of thousands of different things that are known to exist in vivo that don't exist in vitro, what we wanted to focus on was the, was the, the, the complement of things that would then be pre predicted to be most distinct between the primary tumor and the metastatic niche, okay? Our rationale for this was actually for this brand of breast cancer and actually for many other brands of, of cancer in general, it's well established that the primary tumors are very sensitive to conventional chemotherapies, but as these cells migrate to these distant locations, they lose this sensitivity, okay? And so really what we were asking is to what extent is it true that the environments of the metastatic niche produce this chemo-insensitive behavior rather than the cancer cells themselves? And this, there, was no, there was no reason to believe at the beginning that this was an environmental phenomenon because it's also been well established that, that metastatic tumors are fundamentally different than non-metastatic tumors in many different ways. But what we began by asking is, is one of those ways that they are different that they are intrinsically different to chemotherapy? And maybe, as, as you can predict, it doesn't appear that that is true. So here what we're looking at are 10 different uh, triple negative breast cancer cell lines that we had characterized as either being metastatic or non-metastatic in vivo. Uh, and this was done in a prior paper and I haven't, haven't shown the data, but shown here are uh, five cell lines in blue of the basal-like category. These tend not to be met metastatic in mice. Uh, they are more sensitive to chemotherapies, at least in vivo in, in patients. Uh, and, and clinically less aggressive. And then he, shown here in red are five different uh, mesenchymal-like triple negative breast cancer cell lines. These are the ones that tend to be more metastatic, more mesenchymal, they have more stem-like capacity, uh, and at least in patients, they tend to be less sensitive to chemotherapies. And in line with those predictions, you can see that the, the very most sensitive cell is indeed one of the basal variety, and the very least sensitive cell is indeed one of the mesenchymal variety. But I think it's not trivial that the other eight cell lines are essentially not distinguishable. So just to be certain that this wasn't something that was true only of this one drug, we looked at a larger panel here of 10 different drugs in the topoisomerase 1 or 2 class, which tend to be given as frontline therapies to this class of patients. And what you can see here is, just given the color map, there are huge differences in the sensitivity to these agents in this 10-cell line population. 
and clustering using hierarchical clustering methods was able to bifurcate these two into a largely sensitive and a largely insensitive cohort, but those two different profiles weren't in any way related to the, the gene expression programs that these cells, that these cells uh, uh, have established, meaning we didn't recapitulate the predicted clinical phenotypes where the, the red cells in this case, the mesenchymal ones, would be less sensitive, and they're, they're really quite mixed. So, also to deter, to, just to be sure that this wasn't something that was unique to, to um, our cells or our culturing methods or uh, maybe uh, you know, our analysis approaches, we also use publicly available data. So what we're looking at here is an agglomeration of the data from the LINCS consortium, the CCLE, as well as TCGA, uh, in cases where cancers have been annotated as being basal-like or mesenchymal-like and treated either with topoisomerase inhibitors or with all drugs in general. But all of this, again, is in vitro data, not, not clinical data, where I think we would expect to see a difference. And as you can see here, at least when you take these cells uh, and you study them in vitro, in an, let's call it unnatural environment, you cease to see any difference in their sensitivity to topoisomerase inhibitors specifically, uh, or to all drugs in general. So we use this information to catalyze our, our thinking that there was good reason to believe that the environments that these cells were growing in were creating signals that were changing how these cells were regulating death. Okay. So to, to sift through this, this space, our, our strategy has been to create a screening approach, as I mentioned earlier, where we would decompose the conceptual reality of a tumor into a series of pairwise interactions, which we could then systematically characterize as being contributing to cell death differences or not contributing to cell death differences. And we've essentially finished this screening space, which included some physiochemical properties as well as uh, biochemical properties, as well as different cell types that, are, that exist within tumors. But today I'm just going to focus on actually the place we started because it seemed like the lowest hanging fruit, which was interaction between cancer cells and fibroblasts. I call that low hanging fruit because it has already been established that fibroblasts change the behaviors of tumors. And the reason we focused on it is there's some nuance here that I think is quite important. And also it happens to be the largest single contributor to the overall variation in drug sensitivity that we had found. So this was the nature of our screen. We took six different uh, triple negative cell lines, three of the basal, three of the, the mesenchymal variety, and we, we co-mixed these, grew them in co-culture with each of 20 different primary fibroblasts taken from adult patients uh, derived from different anatomical locations. We treated the, each of these co-cultures with a sparse matrix of 43 drugs. This happens to be at least one in class, one per each class of drugs that's currently approved for breast cancer. So although it's sparse, it's meant to be a comprehensive survey uh, of the types of interventions that patients would be receiving. So a key feature in our, in our method is that we needed, to, we needed the ability to see the death of cancer cells without seeing the death or responses of the, the normal cells in co-culture. So we achieved this using dyes. Uh, we labeled the cancer cells with this mitochondrial membrane potential dye called JC1. Uh, JC1 labels cells green, but when it, gets, when it aggregates within mitochondria, the aggregation shifts the fluorescent properties into the orange-red spectra. So we can then quantify the, the metabolic viability of cancer cells um, as a function of their, green, or of their redness relative to their greenness. Uh, fibroblasts were also labeled, although uh, uh, candidly we've done very little with that information, although there's clearly something interesting there. We labeled fibroblasts blue using what's called a cell tracer dye. This is 
in the class of generation dyes, meaning or proliferation dyes. So every time the cells double, the dye will, will be diluted by twofold. So we can see, for example, the proliferation history of the fibroblasts as they experience the drug. In some cases, they seem to senesce. In other cases, they seem to grow unperturbed. Uh, in, in, in nearly all cases, they're essentially insensitive to these drugs, as, as maybe you would anticipate. So the screen used four different doses of each of these drugs, each in biological replicate, and we took images of these plates every eight hours uh, for, for, for 72 total hours, creating nine total time points plus the zero hour. So this is what the screening data looks like. As you can appreciate on the left, uh, these are untreated cells. They have these very bright orange-red foci. Those are healthy mitochondria. Uh, the, the blue cells are the fibroblasts, which are at their full brightness because they, they've just been labeled. If we look two days later, the fibroblasts are much less bright because they've been proliferating even in the context of these drugs. Um, and the, the cancer cells uh, have lost those, those bright mitochondria. They are in the midst of dying, but they are not dead yet. Uh, and you see two behaviors that are characteristic of the signals we're looking for. They've, they've lost the orange-red, and they've gained green. Okay, so that's how we know that they are committed to death. Okay, so what did we see? So we're going to be looking at the data with the, the vi relative viability, meaning fully viable and fully dead, of the cancer cells alone here on the, the x-axis, and the relative viability of those same combinations in co-culture then plotted on the y-axis, so this will create a scatter plot. Okay, So I think given the wealth of the information that exists in the literature, what one should expect is that our data points should be very skewed into this upwards direction, meaning fibroblasts should induce, to some extent, a survival advantage uh, when mixed with cancer cells. There's plenty of evidence for this in different in vitro, in vivo, even co-culture scenarios in many different brands of cancer. Uh, infiltration of fibroblasts is, in, for some cancers, a clinical diagnostic for aggressiveness as well. There is some data that, that suggests that these interactions are possible, meaning interactions between stromal fibroblasting cancer that actually potentiate drug responses, uh, those, those annotations are rarer, and they've generally been underdeveloped. Okay. So this is what we found. And I think there's really two things about this map that, I, that are maybe the most notable. One is it's awfully symmetric, right? So it seems to be equally likely for a fibroblast to induce a survival advantage as it is for a fibroblast to induce a survival disadvantage. Secondly, it spans the entire spectrum of the, of the possible landscape. There are interactions here that turn completely potent responses, such as this, this is a clodin lobe uh, mesenchymal cell line, which is very sensitive to this kinase inhibitor sinitinib, unless you grow these cells with a bone fibroblast, in which case now this drug doesn't work at all. And alternatively, you have you have examples that are equally potent in the other direction, right? So here's a, a basal-like, this is of the basal A variety cell line that is essentially completely resistant to atopicide unless you grow these cells with a fibroblast, in this case derived from the lung, in which case now they will robustly die from the same drug. So uh, there's, there's over 300,000 data points on this map. So what's hard to appreciate is actually the, the distribution of the phenotypes. And this is something that I do want to highlight because this, this piece of information is sometimes lost in the current literature. It's actually interactions with fibroblasts that change drug response are extraordinarily rare. Okay, so you can see in the density plot here, actually 95% of the interactions fall right in this, this, this deeply red cluster, which falls right on the one-to-one the -one diagonal, right? So it's not true that interactions with fibroblasts will, will change the response in general. In general, they should do nothing. 
So 95% exist here. If we extend this all the way down the diagonal, it gets to about 98% of all of our data which are not affected by the environment. But that other 2% is strongly affected in a bidirectional manner. And this is a slightly different message than I think is currently being, being uh, suggested. When we look, uh, for example, we can use the correlation amongst our replicates, which is shown here in black, to parameterize different statistical measures, for example, using a, a z-scored criterion. And that tells us that there's about 5,000 interactions we found out of 300,000 that are statistically different than one would have expected given randomness. Uh, these interactions cut across all brands of the cancers we had looked at. They hit all classes of drugs and all of the anatomical locations, with the notable exception that we, we never scored or we, we never saw a significant change with our vehicle controls, as one might expect, and it's also incredibly significantly depleted uh, for hormone targeting agents, again, as one would expect for triple negative breast cancers because they don't express ER and PR. Okay, so there's every reason to believe, I think, that these, these data were reproducible. I'm skipping some of the validation that we did extensively using uh, flow cytometry-based based annotations. Okay, so what I highlighted in the beginning is, is really what we want to know is not do fibroblast change drug response, but why do we see this particular distribution of the data, right? Is there anything that we can see in this data with respect to the cell lines, their genotype, their gene expression state, the cancer cells, or the drugs that give us any predictive power into knowing where a given interaction will fall on this map? Okay, so we began by asking, are there cancer cells or features of cancer cells or fibroblasts or drugs that are enriched for survival-inducing or death-inducing behaviors? And the answer is, of course, yes, you will find these, these types of interactions. For example, the, the, the widely used cell line MDA and B468 is very strongly biased towards survival-inducing interactions, regardless of what drug you give it and regardless of what environment you, you put it in. Uh, WS1, this is a fibroblast derived from primary skin. It's very strongly biased towards not strong, but modestly death-inducing interactions. Again, regardless of what cancer you mix them with and regardless of what drug they're experiencing. And drugs like mitoxantrone, this is the strangest one in our data set, are enriched for phenotypes, but actually in a indiscriminate to direction, meaning it's both enriched for death-inducing and survival-inducing phenotypes across the, the space, so it's kind of, kind of nonsense. So, but instead of exploring this, this space in a, using each feature one at a time, what we did instead was use different brands of multivariate uh, statistical analysis. I'm just showing one of these here for simplicity. This is PCA. So PCA, of course, will reduce the dimensionality of the data by identifying correlated uh, sources of variation, right? We use this, this representation for two purposes. One is it produces... Uh, a visual representation of the relationship between each cancer, stroma, drug interaction, meaning how do these, these tripartite combinations relate to each other statistically. But the second thing that's really important today is it gives us a number. It gives us some computed amount of the overall variation that can be attributed to some single feature, okay? Meaning this is how we can then ask overall, how much did feature X contribute to this pattern, okay? so. The first thing that, that is worth mentioning is that um, sometimes this gets obscured in people's use of PCA. Uh, this particular matrix actually identifies 10 principal components, not two. We showed the first two for simplicity, but in this case, that actually tends to be, to, to be representative. So the first two principal components identified 53% of the overall variation in drug response. That's, that's significant. The other 
the other eight principal components, each one of them was less than 2% of the overall variation. And of course, and combined, they are less than, than these first two. So it is indeed true in this case that the first two components are representative of the, the dominant patterns in the data. So, and I think maybe as, as is demonstrated here using the coloring, what was I think first quite striking was using our co-culture data, it was then very easy to distinguish between basal-like and mesenchymal-like cell lines. Now, this is in contrast to what I mentioned earlier using hierarchical clustering of the monoculture data where we couldn't see that these two cells were different given their drug response profile, even though we thought we should have seen those differences. So to determine if those differences were the result of maybe better analytical techniques like PCA or were the result of co-culturing, we simply took this same data and stripped out all the co-culture data and then re-ran the analysis just using monoculture data. And as you can see, actually, you still capture about 53% of the overall variation in the first two components, actually precisely 53%, but you can no longer distinguish between these two classes of cells. Okay. So, um, so what this means is, for example, the basal-like and the mesenchymal-like cells, they are indeed different. I think this should surprise nobody. But those differences are not manifest unless these cells are grown uh, in a more elaborate environment than in vitro co-culture. And co-culture with fibroblasts was sufficient for inducing the expected changes, right? So maybe another way of saying that is it doesn't appear that the drug insensitivity is intrinsic to the cells, but is related to how these cells interact with components of the environment. Okay, so the second thing that is interesting about this particular map is the dichotomy between basal and mesenchymal is entirely captured on PC2. There's different statistical tests we can do to prove that, which I'm leaving out. Now, by mathematical certainty, you know that PC1 is capturing information that is unrelated to PC2. This is one of the actual limitations of PCA. Um, and what you can see here is that this information that is unrelated to basal versus mesenchymal captures three times more information than the thing that we tend to focus on, right? Our entire use of cancer omics has tried to identify the difference between cancer cell genotypes, whether they be mesenchymal or, or basal. What we're seeing is that that difference is real and it does correlate with drug response and it accounts for three times less information than something else, okay? What is that something else? Uh, given the way we set up the screen, it probably shouldn't surprise you that, that PC1 was identifying variation that's associated with the identity of the fibroblasts, okay? Meaning that each of the 16 fibroblasts essentially, and you can see some of this here, is clustering linearly in some sort of a different vertical pattern, and that's being captured on PC1. At a, at a lower level of granularity, it is also true that there is a bifurcation in the data uh, where, where fibroblasts that are derived from common sites and metastasis tend to project positively on this principal component map, whereas fibroblasts that are derived from uncommon sites and metastasis tend to project negatively on this particular map. This is a statistically significant trend, and it's only true in the first principal component. So the main insights we got from this, this statistical analysis were, were shown here. First, uh, the growth environment turns out to be a stronger influence on the drug response than the genotype, okay? The genotype has an influence. We can calculate it. It's about 13%. Uh, the growth environment induced a much greater difference in this than, than those, those, those genetic changes. Secondly, fibroblasts actually appear to have two different flavors of interaction. It's been well, well calibrated and well, well, well described that, that many fibroblasts induce survival-promoting interactions. It also happens to be true that some can produce survival inhibiting interactions, and this appears to be related to their tissue of origin. Okay, so 
because not everybody likes looking at PCA projections, we also arrayed the data in what one would consider maybe a more straightforward format. But I think even in this case, uh, our ability to to pick the format of analysis for 300,000 data points did require that we first know what the basic patterns are. So I think the PCA is still still fundamental. But what, what I'll show you in just a couple of slides, the next couple of slides is uh, data in kind of a heat map representation. What's shown here is the entire data set for a single uh, unique combination. This is one cell line, one drug, one fibroblast environment. We've arrayed it vertically the time points, horizontally the doses, the replicates are next to each other. As you can see, this particular tile shows a, an interaction where the bone environment desensitizes this cell to cisplatin. Okay, so now this, this 72 data point tile has now been miniaturized. We've appended onto it the, the analogous interactions with the other, for the other metastatic locations, and then appended onto it in the horizontal direction each of the different drugs. So this is now the entire data set for one of the cell lines, okay? And I think there's two different patterns here that tend to be interesting. One is you can see these, these very striking um, vertical stripes, okay? They tend to be red. Uh, these are drugs that um, are inhibited by environmental interactions, but in a manner that it, wherein it doesn't matter which environment you put them in. You can see that they tend to be enriched in targeted agents. This is very similar to a message that came out of Todd Golub's group uh, maybe four or five years ago where they found that targeted agents tend to be uh, desensitized by interactions with, with stromal fibroblasts. So we can see that here as well. But the second feature in our data that would have been suppressed given any other representation uh, but came out of our PCA is that you do see these, these horizontal bands that, that also exist in this, this landscape, meaning it does appear that a given fibroblast has a, an intrinsic behavior, right? So this one down here, which happens to be HUF, it's a uterine-derived fibroblast, it tends to exacerbate the drug response of these cancers regardless of what drug you gave them. Right? And likewise, here's HS27A, it's a bone-derived fibroblast. It tends to inhibit the drug response, but again, it doesn't matter what drug you give them, right? So the other thing that, yes, please. The fibroblasts are all primary cells? That's right. And they're from different donors? That's right. They're a mixture of donors per site? We bought these commercially, so we have no information about that. So let's just presume, but I don't know, that they are all unrelated genetically, but I don't know. Um, there's a, there, yeah, there's a company that would sell us the, our only criterion is that they were adult and that we knew what the Hayflick limit was because we wanted to stay safely away from replicative senescence. And so. But your assumption is that each of the fibroblasts was from a single donor? No, no, no. Opposite. That they're, yeah. That they're mixtures of. Yeah, that they must be. Yeah. Great. Yeah. But we don't have any precise information on that. So plenty of things to learn there. So. The other thing that I think we had, we would have never have done this if not for the PCA is, so the PCA told us that although there are different genotypes, they probably don't account for much information. So what this means in this type of a representation is we should be able to sum across that, that, that space, meaning average a map like this for every different cell line and still recover the canonical behaviors. If you had believed, as we would have beforehand, that, this, that the, the genotypes themselves would have each their own intrinsic pattern, if you attempted to sum across them, you, sh you would expect that this map would be essentially washed out and turned largely white. But in fact, if, what you see here is if you average this map across all triple negative cell lines, 
you, you lost one of the two phenotypes. Actually, the, the, many of these striking red stripes are lost, meaning that those interactions, as was previously demonstrated, are quite unique to particular genotypes, meaning each, each cancer cell has its own targeted agents that, that, that it cares about and get inhibited. So we lost many of those, but we've actually further enriched these, these horizontal stripes, meaning that is, is truly a dominant behavior that doesn't care what cancer we're talking about, right? And it actually also doesn't care what drug these cancers have been given. Okay, so just to briefly summarize this first portion of my talk, we found that uh, basal-like and mesenchymal-like TMBC cells, uh, they are similarly sensitive to conventional chemotherapies in vitro, right? And I, I mean, that fact in and of itself is not meaningful. It could also be interpreted as these cells are not relevant. Uh, but uh, what we've found is that the expected divergence in their drug response, meaning that the basal-like will be more sensitive than the mesenchymal-like, it can be observed in vitro. Uh, and, uh, for example, if you co-culture these cells with stromal fibroblasts, and our interpretation of this, as I mentioned earlier, is that the interactions between these cells and certain components of the microenvironment seem to be what is the cause of the observed drug insensitivity uh, in metastatic niches. Uh, and that fibroblasts are sufficient to induce this, this general pattern. And then the second thing that I think has not been reported uh, well in the literature is that there appear to be two different types of fibroblast interactions with cancer cells, um, some of which uh, produce survival advantage, some of which produce death advantage. And it happens to be true, at least in this data set, uh, that the tissues that are commonly harboring metastatic growth, bone, brain, liver, and lung, tend to produce sensitizing interactions sorry, drug desensitizing interactions, uh, whereas the tissues that tend, uh, that, that do not harbor metastatic growth uh, tend to promote drug sensitizing interactions. Okay, so for the, the second half of my talk, uh, what I wanted to focus on was this basic question, how is it that fibroblasts enhance drug sensitivity? Meaning what we want to focus on are these, these, kind of, these horizontal blue patterns. And the reasons for this was really twofold. One is that, as I mentioned, those interactions haven't been as widely studied in the literature. We have good reason to understand how these, the, the red space is, is dictated from other people's reports. In the blue space, we, we don't really have anything to lean on for why it is or how it is that fibroblasts could do this. And the second thing that's hard to, to, to see in this representation is is actually the blue space was entirely consistent across genotypes. Meaning every cancer we've looked at and we've, we've, you know, our screen had six cell lines. We further elaborated portions of this across more than 60 cell lines. And it happened to be true irregardless of genotype. Whereas the red space was actually much more idiosyncratic to the genotypic background. So there is something fundamentally true about why these things are blue that maybe we can, we can identify. So, uh, one of the, 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 the restricting phenomenon here is actually that the response here uh, doesn't depend on the identity of the drug, right? So there, there weren't many different mechanisms that we could envision for how a drug response could be both drug-dependent but not specific to any given drug. And we've come up with three different conceptual models here uh, that we've tested. So the first of which is that it's truly independent of the drug, meaning that the fibroblast somehow just changes the growth, fitness, death prop or death properties of the associated cancer cells. So this can be easily tested, but it wouldn't have been seen in our screen given the way that we were looking at, at the data using the JC1 dye. So what we did here is we labeled fibroblasts using GFP, and we just mixed these cells with unlabeled, sorry, we labeled cancer cells with GFP, and we just mixed them with unlabeled fibroblasts to monitor their growth in the absence of drug over time. 
So here's one example. Uh, this was a strongly uh, uh, survival in uh, promoting fibroblasts. And, and you can see it does modestly increase the growth rate of these cells. So we did the same type of analysis, and you're looking at this in the heat map representation where the color reports the area under the curve for the, for the growth curve. You can see that it is generally a trend that uh, when you mix these cells with fibroblasts that they will grow modestly better. Plenty of the space is white, meaning that there was no change in their growth or, or survival rate. Uh, and notably, in these cases where the drug response is exacerbated, we don't see blue. Okay, so, so the fact that those things were dying better wasn't because fibroblasts were somehow killing them, okay? Now, there are a couple squares here that are blue, just highlighting the most blue square is this one. It's actually not even statistically significant unless you mix these as a, at, a, at a very high fibroblast to cancer ratio, which is not what we had tested in our screen, right? So, so we, we have every reason to believe that, that, this, that the, uh, I'll just go forward, that, that the, the growth fitness of, of cancer cells is not being negatively uh, regulated by fibroblasts, okay? So the second mechanism that we tested was maybe that fibroblasts were altering the bioavailability or the potency of the drug. And there's many ways that this could happen, and we could parse this apart a thousand different ways. For example, a fibroblast might change the expression of a drug pump on the surface of cancer cells. Many drug pumps have very loose substrate specificity, so that could account for the broad-spectrum drug desensitization. Uh, it also could be true that fibroblasts were metabolizing, that certain fibroblasts were metabolizing the drug from a proform to maybe a more potent form. Uh, or it might be true that fibroblasts differ in their ability to sequester drug versus spit out drug, and maybe this is creating some sort of an imbalance uh, when you look across these fibroblast environments. So, Rather than test all of these in their most mechanistically determined way, what we did is focus on drugs that uh, all share a common mechanism of inducing death through, through causing DNA damage. Because then we could use a single reporter, in this case phosphorylation of the histone variant H2AX, which is phosphorylated at sites of DNA damage, to then observe how much drug is being experienced by the cancer cells as we mix them in and out of these environments, okay? So again, we used labeled cancer cells mixed with unlabeled fibroblasts. We, we fixed these at different points in time, and we stained them for phosphorylation of H2AX. We used uh, automated image analysis using a, a, a pipeline called Cell Profiler developed by Ann Carpenter uh, so that we could distinguish nuclei that were themselves from cancer and nuclei that weren't from cancer, and we quantified these. I think the average number of nuclei you'll see on this next plot is a little bit over 2,000. So what we're looking at here is the relative drug sensitivity from our screen, okay, it's meaning uh, the, the co-culture to monoculture drug ratio here on the x-axis, and then here's the H2X intensity. Uh, from our imaging analysis that I just highlighted. And as you can see, there's not a strong correlation between these two, these two behaviors, although, although I think it's an interesting discussion about whether one should have expected a positive correlation or a negative correlation. And you tend to get different answers depending on people's bias, meaning does more DNA damage cause more death or does it cause more survival? And there's good evidence for both in the literature. But in any case, we don't see a strong correlation. Uh, which only means that changing drug potency or availability is not the dominant mechanism by which this happens. You do see single events that are themselves highly positively and negatively correlated, so it could account for some of these phenotypes. Uh, notably, if you look at the cases, for example, that we cared about, just showing one example here of a strong drug sensitizing interaction, for example, interactions between the cell line and a uterine fibroblast, you observe no difference in their H2X phosphorylation. So these drug sensitizing phenotypes tend not to be caused uh, by changing the potency of the drug. 
And the same is true if we pick uh, very strong desensitizing phenotypes. In that case, it also doesn't appear to correlate with the response. Okay. So then the final mechanism we tested was whether uh, fibroblasts were simply altering the resting state of the cancer cell. And to understand what I mean by resting state, we have to explore uh, a concept that was introduced by Tony Latai's group called apoptotic priming. And so one can consider that drug-induced cell death is really the function of two unrelated inputs, right? The one we tend to focus on is what we would call the drug-specific cellular response, meaning the ability of a drug to push a cell from a healthy state to a dead state. Okay. But there's an additional parameter here that we tend not to focus on, and that's the resting state of the cell. How close is this cell to the boundary of being dead? Right? So what you can envision is a scenario where a different cell, or let's say the same cell in a different environment, has the exact same response to the drug, but it started out from a more healthy state. And in that case, maybe it just doesn't die. Okay? So meaning, and then the distance between these two states is then what one would consider the relative difference in their priming. So the concept of apoptotic priming, as we currently understand it, appears to be related to the local concentration of pro and anti-apoptotic proteins on the surface of mitochondria, and it's not even all mitochondria. It turns out there are some mitochondria that seem to be prioritized for, for elaborating the signal, and you can kill off tons of the mitochondria in the cell, and the cell will still survive. And, and this is something that is currently unknown. So it turns out to be very difficult to measure this particular uh, level of resolution, but it is possible to infer the priming state using Tony's B3 profiling assay. So the way this assay works is that cells are lightly permeabilized using digitomin. This removes cholesterol from the plasma membrane. Uh, so then you can soak in different concentrations of proapoptotic peptides, and then we're interpreting their, their level of priming by how much peptide they requ was required to puncture mitochondria and release cytochrome C. Right? So a difference in priming would be a difference in the amount of a proapoptotic peptide that's required. Okay? Uh, this is a control, for example. We stained here for cytochrome C, and you can see using this is, this is a drug that permeabilizes mitochondria independent of the apoptotic machinery. We just use this for parameterizing our gating. And you, what you can see is if you give them a strong apoptotic peptide like BIM, and this actually has to be empirically defined. You have to test every different apoptotic peptide to figure out what, which one your cell is under the control of. These ones happen to be BIM. Uh, they respond given a certain concentration of BIM represented here in the black curve. If we co-culture these cells with a death-stimulating uh, fibroblast like C12385, now we've moved the BIM sensitivity curve by about an order of magnitude, right? So this is a relatively significant change. And again, if we mix these cells with a potent survival-inducing fibroblast like HADF, now we've made these cells almost incapable of puncturing their mitochondria. Okay, so we can do this. We, we only did this for a small set of our data because there's some peculiarities to the protocol that make it non-amenable for every cell line, um, meaning the digitonin kills a lot of different cells. So not every cell can tolerate the BH3 protocol. We only, only had two that could. But you can see, at least for these cases, there's a strong correlation between the drug response or the degree to which the drug response was changed and their change in apoptotic priming. Okay, so... Just to summarize this last portion of my talk, we found that fibroblasts generally improve the growth fitness of cancer cells. There are some, there are some outliers to this, but it seemed to be a generic trend. Maybe that's understandable given that fibroblasts secrete matrix and growth factor and other things that, that cells generally like. Um, 
So I didn't talk about this, this part at all because I thought that'd be constricted in time, but um, it turns out that the, the uh, drug modulating interactions that, that promoted, or most of the drug modulating interactions could not be recapitulated using uh, conditioned media. And we've done a little bit of testing to highlight that it appears that these interactions are generally caused by extracellular matrix proteins um, that, that happen to be restricted to the portions of that map that were largely red. For the portions of the map that were blue, which I highlighted, it tended to be true, uh, first of all, that these, these modulate drug response by modulating mitochondrial priming, and then again in, in some data that I left out, that this was due, or this was due, to, uh, due to secretion of inflammatory cytokines by fibroblasts. Um, I can show a little bit of that data maybe, but uh, we know this because we could recapitulate these phenotypes using conditioned media, and then we've tested a few uh, highly expressed inflammatory cytokines like IL-8, which does appear to be required for, for the drug sensitization. So we have at least some handle on where we should be looking, and it appears to be uh, inflammatory cytokines. Okay, so um, a brief acknowledgments. This study was entirely... Uh, executed by my grad student, Ben Landry, um, with some help from our collaborators uh, in, in the University of Groningen, Marcel Van Voot. Actually, Anna Marguerite was my, my first technician and went to do grad work in his lab, and he was kind enough to send her back to my lab to train uh, Ben and others in some of our analytical techniques. Uh, and the work I left out about extracellular matrix is, is done in collaboration with Shelley Payton, and this is going to ex expand into a larger-scale effort to uh, decompose and then reconstruct tumors from all of their mechanical parts. We do this using her expertise in uh, material science and engineering to create different representations that are meant to mimic different physical or physiochemical properties. Uh, and we're also supported by some of our collaborators at UMass, including Art Mercurio, who you, you guys met maybe a month ago, and Dale Greiner, who's um, one of the, the gurus in the personalized or the, the PDX model space. He's the developer of the NSG model, and we have a, a rich cancer avatar program that we use, that we intend to use in the future to, 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 to create um, large batches of primary tissue. Okay, so uh, yeah, I'll happily take any questions that you have. So you must have tried to, to um, look at microarrays or something for genes that correlate with your phenotype. Uh, we're doing it now. Uh, you mean in cancer cells or in fibroblasts? Yeah, so um, we've we finished the part in cancer cells. We have actually had a little bit of difficulty making pure populations of fibroblasts. Um, one, I, I think this is hampered by the fact that we're not really experts in fibroblasts, so our first readings of the literature about what um, canonical surface markers were did, you know, weren't working that well. And, and I think the truth is there isn't a canonical marker that works for all fibroblasts, right? So we've had to cobble this together using different, different surface epitopes. Um, but, yeah, because we're trying to do this both from cells grown alone and in co-culture to see what types of things are either drug-induced or contact-induced, and, and that's certainly the next phase of this project. But we don't have anything right now. Todd? Um, did you use one fibroblast, um, not line, but fibroblast <coughs> line per organ site? Uterine fibroblasts confer a certain phenotype. Did you then test other uterine fibroblasts? Yeah. So our primary screen was a little bit larger than this, and we had we had tried to get two, if not three, 
um, versions of fibroblasts genetically unrelated from um, adult patients, right, or from adult tissues. And um, what, what ended up happening to some pieces of the data was things that had been annotated commercially as being from adults were, in fact, infant-derived. Um, and those produced very different responses. Um, and so we lost some of that representation. It's generally true that for everything, we still have two anatomical locations represented. For example, these bottom two are both uterine-derived. But, but they, they absolutely do. There's, there's a single outlier in that. Actually, it's shown here. So it, in, of the lung ones, where actually we had four, uh, it turned out that two of them were, well, one of them was immortalized and one of them was, 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 uh, was, um, was an infant uh, sample. Uh, so the, but of the four, there was one outlier, and, and uh, that one outlier happened. You can, we, we can't justify removing it for any, any real way, so it's, it's left in here. But there's only a single outlier where the, the, the organ-matched pairs didn't phenocopy each other. When you have pairs, they're definitely from different I, I don't know if that's like a certainty, but yeah, yeah, we haven't done that. But we, yeah, so along the lines of, of the earlier comment, like we certainly can know that. We don't know that right now. Uh, how how much do you think your results are influenced by heterogeneity within the satellite? Yeah, uh, that's interesting. So we. We, we, we collected the data using imaging, thinking that that was going to be a dominant feature. Um, and it still can be, right? Because some of these changes, you know, I mean, for the ones that are going from 100% sensitive to 100% insensitive, it's hard to argue that, like, a subpopulation controls that response. But a lot of these behaviors are, are more subtle than that. So it might be prioritizing killing one subgroup versus another, and that's absolutely possible. Um, the, the most hand-wavy, or the only answer I have for this is somewhat hand-wavy. We do see morphological differences in the surviving cells uh, very commonly that, like, we will enrich for you know, this kind of a generic milieu of shapes that you would expect. And then in our imaging analysis, you can see that you've subselected for a certain class of these. Whether that's a known expression program or not is not something we know at the moment, and that's, that's along the lines of what we're going to try and fetter out using gene expression profiling. But... Um, yeah, so we, we don't know, but I suspect the answer is generically yes, that there's some contrib contribution of intra-sample, intra intratumoral heterogeneity, but yeah. Did you try manipulating the time duration of drug exposure? Uh, yeah, I love that question. We, we, we've played with that in the past, and we didn't do any of that here. I mean, the data are collected at different points in time, but we don't have any instances where we've washed the drug out and watched how they respond. I think that's, I mean, yeah, that tends to be um, something that produces different, different phenotypes, and it's certainly interesting. It wasn't what we prioritized here, but yeah. Again, somewhat of a general question. Do you think uh, the response to drugs will be different if you take a MAC versus a primary cure? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it is true that, you know, the, the, uh, you know, for example, 231s came from a patient's metastasis, and they do metastasize, and BT20, for example, does not. But, yeah, these have, been, these have been cultured in vitro for, like, 70 years, so it's hard to call those METs and non-METs. Um, it's worth trying. I mean, you know, I, I think we, we started here because this is what we could start with. But, um, but uh, yeah, really what we're trying to do by, by, by 
decomposing like a real scenario into these these <coughs> synthetic interactions is to infer the rules for things that I think we, we really won't be able to see, right? Taking out a metastatic tumor, you can demonstrate that it is less drug sensitive just by watching how it grows and whatnot, but I don't know if it's really that possible to know why it was less drug sensitive, um, unless you could then culture it and or remove pieces from it, which is essentially what's, what we're trying to trying to do here. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 entirely a limitation of, of, of the thinking. You talked about the dynamic synthetic lethal in the very beginning. Yeah. Did you get any insight from this analysis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of you know I created a more streamlined story just for the sake of um, understandability, but that was what motivated the original search. And it tends to be true using this screen and some of the other genetic screens that we've done that inflammatory cytokines are are a major determinant of how cells regulate death. Um, so the switching mechanism that was EGFR catalyzed is induced by a transcriptional upregulation of inflammatory cytokines. Um, and and uh, so it seems like cells will prioritize their, not just the, the level of apoptotic priming, but the brand of death they use based on the, the complement of uh, signals they receive, and, and this is largely inflammatory cytokines. Yeah, so that was one of the, the kind of higher order things that we certainly have learned. Um, that, are, that are changing the way we're, we're, we're looking at drugs now. As, as one of the clinicians in the group, can, can you explain how, um, how your, your, um, your findings might translate into a rationally design? That's right. Yeah, so, um, you know, the example that we're starting with is, um, you know, the, the, the maybe I'll, I, can, I can show some of the data somewhere. You know, so we happen to have found that like IL-8 is highly secreted in some of the cells that are that are um, uh, where we see drug sensitizing behaviors. And if you if you give IL-8, you will potentiate the drug response. IL-6 is actually a known a known interaction where IL-6 is supposed to inhibit these these responses. And if you give them conditioned media plus an IL-8 neutralizing antibody, you can neutralize these. That was the data that I didn't show that that we uh, we had. So, for example, that 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 uh, that inference of IL-8's role or inflammatory cytokines in that family's role uh, was mediated by, was found in an interaction that's unnatural, right? It's, it comes from the interaction between cancer cells and non-metastatic environment. So the type of thing a cancer cell would never have seen. Uh, but what it's, what it's motivating is the idea that IL-8 therapies for this brand of cancer should potentiate their drug response, um, regardless of where they're growing. Okay, and so what we're doing now is 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 treating mice with IL-8, growing tumors in different locations, and what we suspect will happen, or what we're trying to see will happen, is if the distinction between metastatic and primary tumors uh, will essentially fall away. Meaning, although a tumor is growing, for example, in the lung or the brain, that it'll behave as if it's growing in a more drug-treatable environment. Um, and we have no reason to believe, given the data we have now, that that would sensitize any other cell. This seems to be something very unique to these brands of cancer. So that's, that is, that's an idea. It, it's still a step away from clinical translation. Yeah. Thanks.